Lord is good. Amen. Have you guys ever met that person who's always telling you what you should be doing, even though they themselves do the very same things that they're telling you not to do? Like the person who says, hey, you shouldn't eat Twinkies because they're bad for you. But like you open their pantry one day for whatever reason, and you're like, there's Twinkies here. Or perhaps it's maybe like the celebrities who, who, te- who tell us, hey, hey, you should stop using gas to save the planet while I fly on my private jet and use 1,100 times as much gas as you use. <laughs> or before we start pointing the finger at them, perhaps it is when we say, hopefully don't say, but maybe you've said or even thought the thing to your kids before, do as I say, not as I do. Or that really painful moment where you might be correcting your children for something and they come up to you and say, but you do that. It is a painful moment wherein our hypocrisy is called out. And for all that Paul has to say about the blatant sins of ungodly people in the opening chapters of Romans, He leaves no stone unturned in the field of stony hearts, those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And sometimes that suppression of truth is found in the form of hypocrisy. Suppressing the truth about our own deeds, our own hearts, our own motives and intentions. And Paul writes in a way that leaves no one, no one unscathed. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. What Paul began in the end of chapter 1, where we were last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch that if you missed for some reason. What he began in the end of chapter 1, he'll now continue throughout chapters 2 and 3, the task of making sure that everyone realizes we are all guilty before God, all sinners, all subject to judgment and the wrath of God, unless... We find the means for salvation, the good news that Paul is not ashamed of, that we sang about in that first song, the good news of Jesus Christ. And this doesn't just mean calling out the things that are blatant sin. It also means sometimes confronting hypocrisy. Paul recognizes that even though he warns about the wrath of God against sin and ungodliness, that there would be people listening to the reading of this letter and they'd be thinking, man, Paul is on fire today. He's preaching it. He's calling out these sinners. Get them, Paul, that's right. Without ever taking a second to look in the mirror. Why? Because they have enough knowledge of the truth, enough good deeds, enough obedience to have convinced themselves of their own goodness, their own righteousness, and not being honest with themselves about their unrighteous hearts. So Paul digs in his heels as he presses into this. And I want to say, stay with me, because even though we've got a few weeks of just working through some of this challenging confrontation I'm never going to leave the bad news without good news. As he digs in his heels here, everyone who hears the letter that Paul writes, everyone, everyone from the first century Gentile or first century Jew 
to the modern churchgoer, everyone should read the book of Romans and in the first couple of chapters just go, uh-oh, yikes, and make sure that they're wrestling with their own hearts. Romans chapter 2 will start in verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Let's remember, last week, we're coming right out of Paul saying, you know, they're, they're the ungodly in the world, those who suppress the truth about God and exchange the truth and the glory of God for the lie, exchange the glory of God for lesser things and worship the creator rather than, or worship the created things rather than the creator. From that, he says, therefore... You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Lord, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would cause the holy word of God to penetrate our hearts, to cause us to examine ourselves against what your word declares, that you would open our eyes today to see the truth, to receive it, to believe it, and to walk it out and that we would be transformed more and more into the image of Christ, to the glory of your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Paul is most likely here addressing Jewish Christians in that church in Rome. Those who believe in Jesus, they've heard the gospel about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, and for all their belief that he is the Messiah, they are actually not trusting in the righteousness from Jesus that he imputes to them, that righteousness that he gives. Instead, they are trusting in the fact that they're circumcised or that they obey the Jewish kosher, kosher laws or that they are trying to be good people and do good things and do good works. They're trusting in their moral uprightness more than they are trusting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So they're thinking, because I'm a Jew, I was born a son of Abraham, and I've been circumcised, and I'm in that covenant that God made long, long ago, that I'm good. I'm on the inside. And they then would condemn the sins of others while still trusting that insider aspect, trusting that 
to not let them be condemned for doing the very same things that they're pointing the fingers at others for doing. Paul recognized that so far, his words would have cut many. When, he, when he's talking about those who are ungodly, and he talks about men who lie with men, women who lie with women, when he talks about um, the gossip or, or the greedy or the envious or the covetousness or those who disobey their parents, he recognizes that, that many or, or most would have been cut by those allegations and would have gone, oh, that's me. I'm under the wrath of God and I need a savior. But he also recognizes that not all would have yet been honest with themselves. Not all would have looked in the mirror. Not all would have been cut by it. Not because those allegations didn't apply to all, but because there would be people in their midst who thought they were good because of their good works, like circumcision and Jewish kosher laws, like observing festivals. And Paul is implying here, hey, if you're a Jew... You're going to be judged first. When he said, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He said, you're going to be judged first. And if you think your hypocrisy will be overlooked because you were born into the right family and you've done some of the right things, you've got another thing coming. So first, we see here from this passage, there is a pretty clear, pretty obvious condemnation for one category of sin, and that, that category is hypocrisy. Acting like we are one way or saying one thing while doing another. Why does God hate our hypocrisy? Paul says a little bit why. Paul says because it's presumptuous. We are presuming things. Number one, hypocrisy presumes that God will keep paying the bill because he paid the bill. And although he has more than enough grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness in his account, he could never run out paying your bill. He will never overdraft. He will never go bankrupt. God has more mercy, more grace. In fact, we're going to see in a few chapters later, Paul says, wherever your sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. So if you're sitting here thinking, man, I, I, I've sinned so much that God's grace is going to run out on me. Well, it's never that God's grace would run out. The question is, have you actually repented that you just continue to live in the way that you had been living? I don't think it's realistic for any of us to think that we're going to live perfect after we come to faith in Christ. That's a heresy called Pelagianism that was called heresy hundreds of years ago. The concept that, hey, you're a Christian now, so you'll never sin again. Paul in Romans chapter 7 just blows that out of the water and actually confesses his own hypocrisy by saying, man, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the good things I want to do, or I'm sorry, the good things I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I do. And he goes on in that confession to say, it's evident that sin still dwells in my members, in my flesh. And that although he'd been made new, regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, given a new heart in Christ, that there still is this war between the flesh and the spirit. But the faithful Christian, the child of God, wages war. The hypocrite doesn't. So one, that hypocrisy presumes that God will just keep 
paying the bill because he paid the bill. And although he has more than enough to keep paying the bill, it presumes his generosity and doesn't respond appropriately. This is why Paul said in this, re- in this section we just read that you presume and forget God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance, not to perpetual swiping of the sin debt. Swipe or no swiping. A few parents will get that reference, or grandparents perhaps. I've actually never watched an episode of Dora the Explorer, but I've heard that quote. Stop swiping because when you continue to just choose to live in sin, this is also what John the Apostle talks about in 1 John when he says, those who continue to live in sin are deceiving themselves, not walking in the light as they profess to be walking in the light. Because if we walk in the light as he is in the light, our deeds are exposed. We confess that sin, bear it before the Lord and others. The second presumption that hypocrisy makes, hypocrisy presumes that our good works are enough. That's what he's saying right there to the Jews. He's saying, you're presuming that because you're circumcised and because you obey the kosher laws and because you observe festivals and whatever other things you believe are the things that are necessary for a good Christian person of Jewish descent, you're trusting in those things rather than trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. Third, hypocrisy presumes that Christ's return or our death could not possibly be right around the corner. It's presuming that I can continue to live this way even though I say other things. It presumes that there's no way that Christ could come back at any moment. There's no way that I could possibly get hit by a car on the way out today or whatever and not die. And I'm sure that all of us have felt the pain of a friend, a family member, a loved one going what we would call too soon. And if we're talking about the day of the Lord when Christ would return, Jesus teaches that that night comes like a thief in the night, that no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. So to continue to live in hypocrisy presumes that that's not true. It presumes that Jesus isn't telling the truth, that it couldn't just be any moment, that it's, it's way down the line and I've got time to live. I've got time to continue in this. And or it presumes that that tragedy could not befall us. This is why Matthew Henry one time said, the day is coming when hypocrites will be stripped of their fig leaves. Because there is a day coming where if we choose to persist in hypocrisy instead of being honest and confessing that we will stand before the Lord And we'll see in a moment when Jesus talks to the Pharisees calling out their hypocrisy, it's called woe to you. The fourth reason hypocrisy is presumptuous, hypocrisy presumes that there is no fallout to our pretending to be one way while truly being another. It presumes that there's no effect, no ripples from us saying one thing and doing another, from us pretending to be one way while truly in heart and in deed and in secret being another. You know, I I got on YouTube this week and just for kicks and giggles, I wanted to see what would happen if I searched for examples of hypocrisy. And as I scrolled through the results on YouTube of examples of hypocrisy, the overwhelming percentage 
was videos about Christians being hypocrites. That's sad, right? Now, I will say sometimes sinners lob that accusation because they don't want to confess their own sin. They don't want to acknowledge sin and they'll look for an opportunity, a chink, a weakness to go, ha ha, see, I'm fine. So there is a part to that. But there is also the fact that hypocrisy is, is damning to the unbeliever because they do say, hey, we see and hear this from you, but then we see this from you. I also think that hypocrisy is the height of self-righteousness. It is looking at ourselves with an overestimated view of our personal righteousness by comparing our good deeds to the misdeeds or sins of others. It is comparing our, what we feel we do a good job at, we compare that to what we feel others are doing a bad job at, or pretending that we're not one way that we actually are. Comparing our good deeds to others' misdeeds while simultaneously underestimating the gravity of our own sin. It is the calling out of the splinter in our neighbor's eye while ignoring the plank, the log Jesus talked about that's sticking out of our eye. It is maximizing the sin of others while minimizing our own sin. This is why Jesus confronted and called out the Pharisees so much. This is why they were butting heads all the time. Because Jesus comes in preaching a gospel of repentance and confession. A gospel that God is good, man is not, and you need to repent. And you can never do enough good deeds to earn righteousness. And the Pharisees going, uh, this is all I've got. I'm really good at earning righteousness apart from this stuff behind the curtain that no one knows about. And so Jesus, you need to be quiet. And Jesus preaches and teaches in a way that confronts their hypocrisy, exposes their hypocrisy, and they hate him for it. Matthew chapter 23, the famous seven woes to the Pharisees that Jesus proclaims. Matthew 23, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 first. Then Jesus says to the crowd and his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, talking about in the temple where they would teach the law. So do and observe whatever they tell you, meaning when they teach you the law, when they teach you the truth, do it. Do whatever they tell you, but, do, uh, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, talking about the way that they, they adorn themselves to look spiritual, to look religious, to look like they love God. Let's skip down for time's sake to verse 25. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but instead they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And what if we were outside, say that we're having a campfire and we had plates for our food and you had the plates and you dropped them and you knocked them over and they landed face down in the dirt. Your your child might pick it up and still think that it's good, but if you saw it face down in the dirt, you're probably going to pick it up and you're going to go, I need to wash this now. Why? Because that's the side where your food is going to rest. What you put into yourself is going to be on that plate or inside that cup. And Jesus is saying, man, the Pharisee is like the person who takes the dirty plate, the dirty cup, leaves it dirty on the side that you eat from, but washes the bottom or the outside. They make sure this thing looks good. If anybody looks at it, it needs to look sparkly, but giving no concern, no thought to what's inside. He magnifies this, presses in deeper and does a beautiful example by saying, man, you're like whitewashed tombs. And if you knew anything of, of tombs in that day, the, the prosperous person, their tomb would have been gorgeous and ornate. A lot of times they had uh, adornments chiseled into the outside of the tomb to make it just look gorgeous and beautiful. But what's on the inside? No matter how beautiful you make the outside of the tomb look, Jesus says, inside, it's dead man bones and filth, decay, rot, stench. I heard a preacher one time say, hypocrisy is nothing better than skin deep holiness. It is a holiness that's on the surface, the outside of the cup, the outside of the tomb, but has not reached into the heart or moreover come out from the heart. This is my story for the first 26 years of my life. I grew up a pastor's kid. I knew all the right things. I could say all the right things with the best of them. I lived my life in a way where I could make everyone look at me and and think, man, Stephen is one of the good ones. Man, if if, if I could have a faith like Stephen, man, that dude, I know nobody's perfect, but man, is he close. And I tried as hard as I could to make everyone think that, man, I loved God so much. All the while, for over a decade, being a prisoner to lust and inappropriate content online and all that. And I had friends, some of my closest and best friends, who were promiscuous and doing things that we all knew we shouldn't have been doing, that I didn't do those things. And so I would look at them and go, Man, I'm thankful that I'm not like them. I'm thankful I can still wear wear my virginity patch. And uh, man, they they need to confess that sin and they need to repent. While before God, I'm doing the exact same thing more and more and more. Being just as evil, but actually stacking another layer of evil on top of it by hiding it and pretending to not be that. It's the height of hypocrisy. When I was 26, it was the first time in my life that all those times throughout those years, feeling guilty over my sin, feeling convicted for my sin, I would come to moments and places in my life where I'd I'd hate myself for it and I'd feel the shame of it. And And I would, because it's what I thought would finally maybe fix it or whatever, every time I was at a youth service or a youth rally or a church service where it hit just right, God, I mean it this time. I'm done with that. 
I confess that sin and God, I leave it behind. I mean it this time, I'm gonna do better. The problem was every single one of those rededications of recommitting my life to God was based completely on my commitment to him, my works, not his. And it was like a little tip of the cap to what Jesus did on the cross. Yeah, thanks Jesus for that. Now let me be good enough again to make everyone show or everyone believe that I'm awesome. Being terrified of my sin being exposed. What if everybody really knows who I am? What if everybody really finds out all of that coming back to the core of people would know who I was? People would know who I really was against who I pretended to be. And for 26 years, I did a really good job of hiding that. Finally, by the grace of God, thank the Lord, I was wrestling with what I believed. And I was wrestling with the theology I'd been taught and what I, what I would what I'd learned about God versus some of the things that I saw in the Bible and I couldn't reconcile them and I was just kind of got in a season of God. I want truth, whether I like it or not. I want to just believe truth. I don't want to be fake. I don't want to pretend to preach and teach things that, that I don't actually truly think are true. And I also am so sick of being this wicked wretch and pretending that I'm something else. And in that, a couple of weeks into that journey of truly, genuinely seeking God and, and opening myself up to the fact that I could be wrong about some things and opening up myself to the fact that I'm, I'm not the good that guy that, that I tried to convince everyone that I was. About two weeks into that, I'm sitting there just reading my Bible, seeking the truth, seeking the Lord. And I just began weeping because I just felt the Holy Spirit change my heart. That's all I can, I can say about it. I didn't repeat a prayer. It wasn't a time where I'm going, God, I mean it this time. But God saw me genuinely seeking him. And he reached into my chest and changed my heart and filled me with his Holy Spirit. And all the things that I used to know about and actually even teach about became real that life in my moment. And simultaneously came the courage and the conviction that I needed to confess and bear that sin to my family to my friends, to my peers, and to my leaders. So I called a bunch of meetings. I called together all of my friends and I said, guys, for 26 years, I've been looking like this. I've been telling you guys this and I've even been judging you guys for your sin when I have been a filthy, lustful, greedy, angry, jealous, selfish person. The reason I believe this is actually when I truly got saved was because it was the first time in my life that I was truly honest about the wickedness of my heart. It was the first time I looked in the mirror and didn't try to say, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing in this sin um, because um, I'm just weak and uh, I need to feed myself more to make sure. No, Stephen, you're in this sin because you love it. For no other reason. I was perpetually a slave to that sin because I loved it. And I believe that salvation comes when we're able to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. It's possible that there's one of two things that could be happening. If you're hearing this this morning and you're wrestling, you're going, ooh. There's two possible sides of what could be happening. Either you have been truly saved and you have 
then let your spirit get so weak by not feeding your spirit, letting your flesh get so strong by always feeding your flesh, and your, your spirit continues to lose because your flesh is strong and your spirit is weak. But Scripture teaches in 1 John and in other places that to live a lifestyle of continuing in sin, I'm not saying you'll never stumble, you will. Paul did, James did, Peter did. We have a count of the apostles sinning and having to confess and confront each other over it. But to choose to live in perpetual sin over and over and over, you harden your heart. Scripture says that our conscience becomes seared where we ignore the Holy Spirit. We, we harden and resist against that judgment of our sin. And so to all of that, either either. You got saved and then you're ignoring the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, which is a dangerous place to be. Or maybe you repeated a prayer after a preacher one time where, you said, where they said, hey, repeat this after me and you'll be saved. And there was no genuine repentance, no fruit of repentance, no lifestyle change that followed, but you're just putting all your trust like the Jew, putting their trust in circumcision, putting your trust in the fact that you repeated, repeated a prayer one time wherein the refrain of Scripture is repent and believe. And you can have belief, mental assent. This is why James said even demons believe in God and tremble. You can believe that God exists but not have faith in Christ that leads to repentance. And this is what Paul is confronting in the hypocrite. The point of all of this is not that there will be people who are innocent because they hadn't received the law, or that there will be people who are innocent because they upheld the law. The whole point of all of this, is this entire section of what Paul's talking about, the whole point of this is that no one's innocent. No one. In fact, when we get to chapter three, we're gonna see him quoting the Old Testament saying, there's none righteous, no, not one. None does good, none seeks after God. There's no such thing as a good person. There is such a thing as a righteous, forgiven person who walks in holiness by the grace of God. Remember, we're still in the middle of Paul's bad news section of his sermon, and I know this is the kind of stuff that just makes us go, yay, happy, we love these type of sermons. But we need to recognize it's in the word of God for our good. Amen? Why is Paul calling out hypocrisy after calling out the ungodliness of men? I think Calvin said it brilliantly. He said, hypocrisy can plunge the mind of man into a dark abyss when he believes his own self-flattery instead of God's verdict. The verdict of God is that we're guilty without excuse, condemned before God and subject to his ultimate wrath if you're not saved. If you have not trusted in Christ to save you from the wrath of God. And if you have questions about that, please go back and watch last week's message. I don't have time to rehash it today. If the, if the diagnosis is hypocrisy, what is the prescription? The opposite of hypocrisy is authenticity. It's authenticity. That's what I stepped into at 26 years old. I wish all those years passed. 
I wish that while I was struggling in sin, I would have bore that sin earlier and got help from brothers and sisters in Christ to say, help, I'm wrestling with this, I'm a prisoner to this, I can't get out of it. And had faithful, loving, gracious, supportive believers do what Galatians chapter six tells us in bearing one another's burdens. That passage in Galatians six that talks about bearing one another's burdens is talking about sin. And what does it look like when someone comes to us and says, hey, here's what's going on in my life. I sinned or I'm in sin. God forbid we go, oh, oh, and forget that we were sinners in need, are sinners in need of a savior. Authenticity is what God calls us into. This is what it looks like in 1 John to walk in the light as he is in the light. What it looks like to confess our sins knowing that 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How gracious and merciful is God that all we have to do is say, God, I'm sorry, I did this, I confess. And then by the grace of God say, Lord, help me turn away from that. But if you really want to shore up your defenses against sin, go ahead and don't take that confession only to the Lord. Take it to a brother or sister in Christ and say, will you help me? Will you walk with me? Will you hold me accountable? Will you check with me? There was one time in those teenage years of mine when I was in that sin where I I confessed it to uh, some close individuals and they cried with me and they prayed with me and they thanked me for my confession And I don't want to put on them the responsibility of my sin, but they never asked me about it ever again. Oh, I wish they would have. Because I dove back into it. See, authenticity says, I'm a wretched sinner who's been saved by the amazing grace of God. I was lost, now found. I was blind, now see. And those glorious truths are purely by the pure grace of God. Any good in me is not by me, but by the grace of God. Authenticity looks like Christians walking with a limp, not a swagger. The Christian doesn't walk around going, yeah, look how good I am. I really love God. I help people, I serve, I give. I thank God that I'm not like those other people. Now the Christian in authenticity goes, man, I am where I am because of the grace of God. It is certainly not because of me and what I bring to the table because the only thing I brought to the table was the sin that made my salvation necessary. Authenticity looks like Christians walking with a limp, not with a swagger. It is an honesty that joyfully proclaims, I am what I am, but by the grace of God. And here's the beautiful thing about authenticity. Authenticity inspires more authenticity in others. Whenever someone steps out in courage and boldness and faith and goes, I'm gonna open up the chest cavity and here's what's there. When someone steps out authentically like that, you see other people go, me too. Man, let's link arms together and fight this together. I love the statement of so many churches that say, no perfect people allowed. Man, could we be a people 
who are ready for the confession of our peers. Who when our brothers or sisters come to us and say, I did this the other night or I, I, I treated so-and-so this way the other day or I, I participated in gossip re- recently or I feel like the other night I really practiced gluttony or I've been living in gluttony or man, I feel like greed's really been an issue in my heart or I feel like I've been living really discontent that we would be a people who go, oh, brother, sister, we wrap our arms around and we weep with each other over our sin and over the, the ramifications and consequences of our sin and then we follow that up with gospel truth of hope and encouragement that those who are in Christ therefore is there no condemnation now this is what Paul does after his own confessions of hypocrisy in Romans 7 he then goes into chapter 8 where he says there's no condemnation though for those who are in Christ Jesus and since that's the case we need to work harder to walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh so that we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh My prayer is that we would be a people who have the humility and the perpetual mirror in front of us. That when we hear of the sins of others in the church, there's no heart, no posture, no no mentality of, wow. But instead a, oh, I'm so sorry you've been struggling with that. I'm with you. Can I help you? How can I help you? Can I serve you in accountability? Can I pray for you? It's contagious. All of this again. Why should we be courageous in humility with confession of our sin? Why should we be authentic? Why should we bear our heart and soul? Because for two and a half chapters where we are in Romans, Paul is saying, we're all without excuse. Every human is under the wrath of God if they are not in Christ. Every single one of us. And that's the point of what he's saying here. You feel like a pretty good person? Nope, you're not. Paul says you're all without excuse. You say, well, I didn't know better. Well, Paul says you know better because your own conscience bears witness against you. Your own sense of morality condemns you. And Paul says you know because creation testifies to this almighty God, the existence of the holy creator is ingrained in your heart. So next time that you're wrestling with, can I be authentic and truly let people in to see and know who I really am? Just remind yourself that you're confessing your sin to other sinners. Just remind yourself that I am bearing to others what I know they have at one time in their life born as well. You're talking to others who have no excuse as well. And if you're talking to someone who is righteous, it's not because of their good deeds. It is because they have confessed their own sins and trusted in Christ to forgive them and cleanse them and wash them and make them new, just like you. And if someone bears authenticity to you, please, please welcome that. Do not betray their confidence. Love them, walk with them, serve them, weep with them, commit to labor with them. One final reason that hypocrisy is so evil is that it robs God of his glory, the glory of God on display in saving sinners. 
This is why hypocrisy is so evil, why self-righteousness is so evil. The God who says, I will not share my glory with any others. When we live in hypocrisy and in self-righteousness, we're going, I want some of the glory by making people think that I'm good because I'm good. And I can give a little tip of the cap to Jesus for dying all across from me. Thanks for that, Jesus. And now I'm gonna do everything else to make everyone think that I'm good. And we rob God of glory, which he will not tolerate. We want to have presenting ourselves as if we pull ourselves up by our faith bootstraps or that we've crawled out and scraped out and climbed out of the pit of sin. But when we say, I swan dove into the pit and mire of sin, I was so stuck in it, so devastated by it, so helplessly lost in it that it took the otherworldly grace of God to get me out. And were it not for his kindness to me, his love for me, his mercy upon me, I would still be dead in sin. What stops us from that and keeps us buried in hypocrisy, pretending to be godly while being ungodly? We'll look again at verse five. Paul runs the diagnostic machine on the hypocrite to get to the root of the problem. Verse five, he said this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, meaning not repentant heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hearts hardened, seared, and calloused by sin. And that hardness of heart is causing us to take God's gracious payment of our debt for granted. It's causing us to presume on the riches of his kindness that he'll just keep footing the bill. Presuming he paid my debt, so I'll just keep swiping. Now here comes the more confusing section, the verses that follow in verse six. Because if you've been in church very long, you all know we are saved by grace through, not of, not of works. Yet in verse six, Paul says this, he will render to each one according to his works. What? <laughs> to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek, but for glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Meaning God's not gonna look over your sin just because you're a Jew born into the covenant. When Paul says he will render to each one according to his works, we must keep that context attached where he's talking about all sorts of evil deeds, whether blatant and exposed or hidden and hypocritical. The bad works as evidence of those whose hearts are dead in sin juxtaposed against the good works as evidence of those whose hearts have been made new by the grace of God and have turned from ungodly living and hypocrisy. Just in case We misunderstand this section to mean our good works will save us. Paul is going to completely destroy that argument in chapters three, four, and five. So make sure and come back. So trust me when I say that's not what Paul is saying right here. Rather, let's note the way that he further contrasts these two crowds. One, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, the righteous, those whose hearts are set on eternity and living accordingly, and two, those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Paul is trying in this section to open the eyes of the self 
righteous hypocrite, the Pharisee. And listen, listen, listen. There is room, there is capacity for the Pharisee and all of us. And I would dare say that there are moments in our lives where we all step in and out of that Pharisee heart in our flesh. A quote from Billy Sunday, he said, hypocrites in the church, yes. And in the lodge and at the home, don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in the mirror. Hypocrites, yes. See that you make the number one less. See that you make the number one less. Listen, if we, have, if we are to receive the grace of God, if we are going to be saved, we must receive it not as we wish to be, not as we pretend to be, but as we are and recognize that God gets glory from saving sinners, not from cleaning up people who were a little dirty. God gets glory from saving wretches like me. And the good news is this. The good news today is just like God can save the ungodly from Romans chapter one, the covetous, the envious, the murderous, the homosexual, the gossip, the, the greedy, God can save the hypocrite in chapter two. Praise God that he can save the hypocrite. If you're here this morning and you are bearing the weight of this and you're going, man, and you're going, I have been the hypocrite. Praise God for the reality check of the mirror. Thank God for the grace manifest in the mirror in your face, causing you to go, that's me. And can I encourage you and comfort you that hypocrisy is not the impardonable sin if it is confessed and repented of. All are called to acknowledge their need for a savior. All are called to repent and trust in Christ's good work on the cross. And in this act of confession and repentance, God gets the glory in saving sinners of all kinds, even self-righteous church folk. God saves sinners of every kind.